Well, good morning. How are we? We good? All right. Hey, it is great to see you. If we have not met, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here. Very excited to get to share with you this morning. We are in part 15 of our King series that we've been in throughout 2019. And if you haven't been around through this series, we've been walking through and studying some of the major Old Testament kings and prophets. And part of this series is there are going to be three weekends where we sort of step away from studying in kind of the major historical books. We step away from those and just do one week focusing on one minor prophet. There will be two more weeks later on in the series where we do that. But this morning is the first weekend where we're going to do that. So this morning we're actually going to be teaching out of the book of Obadiah. Obadiah this morning. Yes, that is in the Bible. And uh, if, if you have your own Bible, Obadiah is only two pages long and there is absolutely no shame in using the table of contents to find it. If you're using the Bible underneath the seat in front of you, it is on page 772. 772, that's where we'll be. Uh, the book of Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, uh, checking in at a whopping 21 verses. They're all contained within a single chapter. Uh, and whereas Pastor Lance just led us through sort of a mini series within the series with, stu- with three weeks on Elisha these last three weeks, we can't even call this a mini series because it's just today. And then we're moving on. Uh, in terms of obscurity, uh, it is hard to get more obscure in the Bible than the book of Obadiah. Uh, this is going to be the only sermon preached on this book in the history of Bridgeway. Uh, this is going to be the only sermon I've ever heard on the book of Obadiah. And I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that it's going to be the only sermon you've ever heard on the book of Obadiah. And if you ask me, that's great news because it means it is going to be the best sermon you have ever heard on the book of Obadiah. And if you're anything like me, you're saying, wait a second, that also means it is going to be the worst sermon I have ever heard on the book of Obadiah. And I would just say, come on, people, glass half full here. And then... (laughs) And then if, if you are, are new to Bridgeway, this is your first weekend here. First of all, thank you. Super glad that you're here. Let's, I just want to acknowledge you got the backup preacher teaching on Obadiah. That's just funny. And however your experience goes today, I just want you to know it can only improve from here. Okay. Uh, but we're glad that you're with us. Uh, and then So just for the rest of you, for you, those of you that have been wondering, when is Bridgeway going to finally address the book of Obadiah? The wait is over. Here we go. But now, one last thing I need to point out before we get into this is, is has our senior pastor, uh, the man who so capably steps onto this stage week after week, so capably teaches us and instructs us in God's word, who is here with us this morning with his beautiful family. Has he been teasing me and snickering at me saying that you have to teach the book of Obadiah? Ha, 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 ha. Yes, he has. And and you all just need to know that. So with that, here we go. The book of Obadiah, here's what you got to know about it. 
It was almost certainly written in the years following 586 B.C., which 586 is a very significant year. If you know your Old Testament history, that was the year that the nation of Babylon invaded Israel, conquered Jerusalem, and took the Jewish people away into exile. Obadiah refers to that event repeatedly in the book. One thing you need to know is that in terms of chronology, kind of where we've been in this, this King series up to this point, we're skipping a lot to study Obadiah. We're basically going to the end and spoiler alert, everybody dies. You're welcome. And we're going to go back and we're going to cover more of the history after Easter. But I've entitled this message, The Eagle's Crash Landing, and that title will make more sense as we get into it here. Uh, The book is divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 16 are a pretty intense pronouncement against a place called Edom. And Edom was located in the southeast of the Dead Sea, and the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Which if you know in the the book of Genesis, there's a story of Jacob and Esau, two twins who have, to put it gently, a very sort of complicated relationship. In the same way, these cities or these civilizations, Israel and Edom, have sort of a very complicated sibling rivalry sort of relationship. There were times when they got along great. In fact, Pastor Lance showed us last week a a situation where in 2 Kings chapter 3, the king of Judah, the king of Israel, and the king of Edom all sort of come together to unite against a common foe. But there were times when they did not get along as well, when they didn't have one another's backs. And that is certainly what's going on in the book of Obadiah. So that's the first part of the book. And then the last few verses, verses 17 through 21, describe a promise of rescue and vindication and restoration for Israel and a promise of God's coming to the earth. Now, before we get into the text, I think it's fair to ask the question, why even bother with a book like this? Why even bother with this short little prophecy written 2,500 years ago, half a world away? What possible relevance could a, could a writing like that have for us today as 21st century Westerners? And I just want you to know, I'm so glad that you asked that question. Because the majority of this book, here, here, I'll give you a couple reasons. Majority of this book, is God pronouncing judgment on this people group, Edom. And he is, to again put it very gently, really angry with them. And here's what you got to understand. God gets angry at things that hurt his people. right? God gets angry for different reasons too. But God's anger is provoked by things that hurt us. He loves us and he wants what is best for us. So he gets angry at things that are going to hurt us. So it is worth asking the question as we study this obscure little prophecy to say, okay, why was God so angry at Edom? And whatever was going on with them, is any of that going on in my heart? And if it is, you and I have tremendous incentive to identify it and to root it out because it is only going to hurt us. It is only going to pull us away from what God wants to do in our lives. And it is only going to pull us away from what I believe we really want out of life. So it's worth studying for that reason. And then the second reason is that the last half of the, or the last couple verses, excuse me, of the book are this beautiful reminder that in the end, God is going to overcome injustice. God is going to correct 
oppression. No matter how bleak things may look, a day will come when rights are wronged and God's rule and reign extends over all the earth. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through the text from beginning to end, and I'll make a few remarks around the, along the way. And then we're going to circle back and just sort of talk about the big idea of this book, because it is so important, because I just want to tell you, the issue that Edom dealt with, and I'm going to, we're going to talk about what it is in just a minute, the issue that Edom dealt with, it is present everywhere in our society today. And it has the power, if it goes unchecked in your heart and mind, it has the power to wreck our relationships. It has the power to negatively affect us professionally. It has the power to pull us away from our relationship with God. So once again, we have tremendous incentive to identify it and root it out. So here we go. Obadiah, and I don't even have to say chapter one because there's only one chapter. Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Real quick, who is Obadiah? We have no idea. The name Obadiah was about as common in the ancient Near East as the name Steve is in the 21st century West. So there were a lot of Obadiahs running around. In fact, the, the Old Testament refers to 12 different Obadiahs, and there is not a shred of evidence to suggest that any one of them was the person who wrote this particular prophecy. So all we know is his name is Obadiah. Continuing in verse 1. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. So he starts by saying a message has gone out to these civilizations surrounding Edom. Letting them know, prepare yourselves for battle. A fight is coming. Get ready. Verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. What was Edom's issue? Pride. Pride. The end of the day, Edom's issue was pride. And pride is one of those weird words that has a lot of different definitions. And the Bible talks a lot about pride, so we need to be really clear. When the Bible talks about and the Bible condemns pride, what is it not talking about and what is it talking about? It's not talking about, say, for example, being proud of your children. It's not talking about being proud of your parents or of something a loved one has accomplished. It's not talking about sort of that, just that sense of just satisfaction of, okay, I've, I've worked hard and I've done my part. It's not talking about that. When the Bible talks about pride, it is talking about an inflated sense of our own importance. It's talking about vanity. It's talking about egoism. It's talking about an obsession with oneself. It's talking about being so consumed with the need to, to appear big and important that in fact in the eyes of others we begin to appear very small. That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about pride. As a matter of fact, if you're following along on the app or with the bulletin you received on, when you walked in today, here, here's your fill in the blank. It's this, pride is a trap. Pride is a trap. Pride makes all sorts of promises, but it fails to deliver. Pride makes all sorts of promises, but it fails 
to deliver. In the case of Edom, part of the reason for their pride was, it says here in the, the text, you live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling. Edom was this place, it existed high in a mountainous region of, of elevations exceeding 5,000 feet. It was sort of an, the original mile-high city. And because they were so removed from everything else going on, because they had safety and security, or so they thought, that came from their location, they sort of lived with this sense of aloofness. They sort of lived with this sense of not needing to care about the needs of anybody else, including Israel, because they were safe and secure where they lived, or so they thought. They thought they were soaring like an eagle, but the eagle is about to make a very, very rough crash landing. Verse 5. If thieves came, came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. What's he saying here? It's very simple. He's saying, listen, if thieves had come and sort of tried to ransack your civilization, they would have been limited by just what they can take. It's sort of a very simple concept. The devastation that thieves could bring to you would be limited by just this sheer ability of them to sort of take your stuff and run off with it. So they would not be able to totally devastate you. Or Edom, because it was a mountainous region, it was it was thrive, a thriving place for vineyards. So there were grapes all over the place, which is why it mentions grape gatherers. Saying if people had come to steal your grapes, which is a very real problem for them, they would just be limited by how much they could take with them. So they would have left some gleanings behind. It wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been able to devastate you. But what's what's going to happen to you is going to be of a totally different deal. The destruction that is coming is going to be significant and it is going to be thorough. Verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. He's saying, you think, Edom, that you have a bunch of allies, that you not only are you living sort of up in the mountains where you're protected from everyone else, you have a bunch of allies that are going to come to your defense. That is not true. That even those who have eaten bread with you, which is sort of a symbol of allegiance, They're not for you. They're against you. God's saying, Edom, you have nowhere to run. This is not a good day for them. Verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Taman was, was the grandson of Esau, the person. And then Taman was a city within Edom, that was known as a center of sort of intellectual sophistication and military strength. And God is saying, listen, your human wisdom and your human strength are no match for me. They are no match for me. Now, in the next several verses, we're going to see one of the great dangers of pride. Because pride is rarely self-contained. When pride gets into our hearts, it provokes all sorts of destructive behaviors. When pride gets into our hearts, it provokes all sorts of destructive ways of thinking. I I think about it this way. How many of you have seen uh, that Pixar movie, Inside Out? 
where it's they sort of demonstrate different human emotions through these little characters. It is a brilliant movie, one of my favorites ever. And I think about how, like, how would they personify pride, right? Like, what would pride look like? I can tell you this much. Pride would not roll alone. Because when pride shows up, pride brings its friends with it. And let me tell you, pride's friends are your enemies. And they are the enemies of the people you love the most. Because pride brings with it its friends anger and greed and carelessness and thoughtlessness and envy and comparison and all sorts of other negative emotions. And what we're going to see as we just look at the next section of the text is that in the case of the Edomites, their pride provoked all sorts of negative behavior. Verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. Jacob here is a reference to the people of Israel, And it refers to the suffering that Israel experienced when they were invaded by the Babylonians. And again, it's referred to as your brother. And the understanding here is just as Jacob and Esau were brothers with a complicated relationship. The idea was that, that Israel and Edom were supposed to be like brothers where, and maybe you've got a relationship like this with a sibling today where there's like, you don't get along super great and you're really different from each other. And maybe you argue and fight about stuff, but you just sort of know at the end of the day, if something big goes down, you've got each other's backs. That's what the relationship between Israel and Edom was supposed to be. But in fact, that is not what happened in Israel's greatest day of distress. Verse 11, on the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreign and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Instead of coming to your brother's aids, you joined with the bad guys. Verse 12. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over their disaster. In the day of his calamity, do not loot his wealth. In the day of his calamity, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Fugitives are people that are trying to escape the destruction. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. And understand this is written as a command. Do not do these things. But these are things that Edom had in fact already done. And, and here's the deal. One of the many ways that pride devastates us is it puts us in a position where we will take whatever opportunity we can to position ourselves above other people. Rather than sympathize with those who are hurting, we pat ourselves on the back because we're not like them. Right? That's exactly what Edom did. Instead of coming to their aid, we pile on. Rather than seeing what's going on with others, negative things happening with others, and just taking that as an opportunity to sort of reflect on our own brokenness and repent of our own sinfulness, we pile on. And that's exactly what Edom did. See, what Edom should have done is they should have seen what was going on in Jerusalem, that this was not just a random attack of Babylon attacking Israel. 
that this was a sign of God's judgment on Israel because of Israel's sin. They should have seen that, recognized their own sin, and turned in humble repentance of saying, we're not so different than they are. That could just as easily be us. But instead, they did the exact opposite. And see, when we give ourselves over to pride, it activates something sickening in our hearts that causes us to take this weird pleasure at the failure of others. And see, we don't have like a word, we don't have like a single word for that in English, but in German, there's a word for it. Any of you German speakers, you know it. It's this word schadenfreude, which I'm probably butchering the pronunciation even four services in. And that is all the German I know, by the way, and I needed Google's help on it. But the word literally means a sense of pleasure derived by the misfortune of others. And it's everywhere in our world today. Why is it that for so many of us, the suffering of others gives us this weird sense of happiness or even this sense of self-righteousness? I suspect that because of our pride and insecurity, We want to be reassured that the bad guys are out there and that we, in fact, are good. Or, because of our pride and insecurity, seeing the misfortune of others or seeing the misdeeds of others is a helpful distraction for us from dealing with our own junk. Right? And I suspect also, if we're honest, that a lot of us, we just live our lives in a ton of fear. And we're just afraid of bad things happening to us. So we tell us, when we hear about bad things happening to others, we tell ourselves, oh, that, that happened to them because they're bad, but I won't suffer that way because I'm good, I'm different. And when we fall into that sort of pattern of thinking, we just could not be more wrong. In fact, there's a story in the New Testament, Luke chapter 13, where Jesus' disciples, they come to him, and they talk about two tragic instances that had just happened in which people had lost their lives. And they say to him, basically, uh, Jesus, the reason why these people died is because they're way worse sinners than the rest of us, right? Like, it's so ridiculous, but I think we do the same thing. And they say that, expecting Jesus to affirm them, saying, yep, you're right, you're good, they're bad, they're dead, you're not. Hallelujah, right? But Jesus says, no, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but he says, no, that you could not be more wrong. He says, don't you realize that could have been you? He said, instead of piling on or instead of focused on someone else's, being focused on someone else's sin, deal with your own. Instead of being consumed by your pride, have some humility. Have some humility. But I mean, come on, come on, come on. Again, let's just be real honest here. We love to pile on when people screw up. We love to point at people when people screw up, especially publicly we love to look on and say oh my gosh shame on them that is ridiculous i would never do such a thing right but come on let's just let's just again let's just be real honest here let's take an example something that's been in the news recently right bribe someone to get my kid into a better college (gasps) i would never aunt becky how could you (laughs) see we say we would never do that right but you'll harass your kid's teacher over the grade that they gave your kid, right? 
And listen, let's be clear. I'm not drawing a moral equivalence between those two things because they're not equivalent. But if we're being really brutally honest, the biggest difference between those two actions is one is something you can do when you have lots of money and one you can still do even if you don't. Right? So when I hear about a story like that, rather than getting all self-righteous and saying, oh, I would never do that. Come on. I just, I'm a parent of two young kids. I want to look at my own heart and just say, okay, is there anything, any, whatever leads to that, is there even a sliver of that in my own heart where I would have such a like sick obsession with like manipulating the world to help my kids be successful that if I had access to those kind of resources, I would go and do that sort of thing. I want to say, okay, whatever, like what's, what's going on is awful. And I don't hear me trying to say it's not awful because it is awful, but rather than pile on, I just want to say, is there any of that in me? Right. Or let's just take a more, a generic example, some CEO or corporate bigwig or politician or even pastor has to resign because of financial impropriety or, or abusing their power in some way, or just being a massive jerk, which seems to happen a lot these days. That it's so easy for us to look at those situations and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe they would behave in that way. I would never do that, right? And listen, don't hear me for a second defending people who would abuse positions of power to their own advantage or would use their positions of power to hurt others. I am not defending that for a second. But come on, how certain are we that we wouldn't act in that same way if we had that kind of power? Right? Come on, is there anything in my heart? So just, just when I hear about those things in the world, here's just a personal discipline that I try to apply, and, and maybe this will be helpful for you. Is that instead of sort of piling on, instead of getting into this sort of like outrage spin cycle where I just hear about something awful in the world and I clutch my little metaphorical pearls and go, oh my gosh, thank goodness I'm not like them and I'm so good and they're so bad. Instead of doing that, I just want to ask the question, God, what seeds have been planted in my heart that need to be uprooted before they grow into that? Right? Instead of me just getting all self-righteous, God, God, is any of that in me? And would you help me to uproot it? Would you help me to uproot it? I wonder if you need that same reminder. I, I, I think, you know, so often we hear about people who who make terrible mistakes and and do awful things and we just need to remember but for the grace of god go i right and we need to remember that for every fallen leader for every person who blew up their family because of their own bad decisions for every person who got busted for some sort of unethical behavior there was a moment in their lives where they looked at somebody else who fell before them and what did they say that'll never be me right so i don't want to fall into that trap and i don't think god wants us to fall into that trap let's keep going verse 15 for the day of the lord is near upon all nations as you have done it shall be done to you at your head your deeds shall return on your own head for as you have drunk on my holy mountain so all the nations shall drink continually they shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been the, the cup or a, a drink to be poured out is a metaphor for God's judgment throughout Scripture. If you know the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death, he, he prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. That's the, the metaphor being used here. 
But then now, as we get into the final part of the book, there is a significant shift in tone where it goes from addressing Edom and their issues to this message of hope and restoration for Israel. Verse 17. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. Stubble being another metaphor for God's judgment. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those, verse 19, of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those in the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. By the way, the key to pronouncing weird Bible names or Bible places in front of large groups of people, confidence. Hang on to that in case you ever need it. Lots of weird names of places there, but here's the big idea. Here's what God is saying through the prophet. There will be a time, there will be a time when Israel's land will be restored. That is a reoccurring message in the Old Testament from the prophets. Will Israel be punished for their wickedness? Yep. Will there be some destruction and some suffering? Yep. Will it look for a while like the bad guys are going to win and Israel's going to be destroyed? Yep. But will God eventually restore his people? Yep. Right. And that's the promise there. And it says in the final verse, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. He's saying God is going to bring forth righteous leaders who will rule with justice and wisdom and divine authority. And it's interesting sitting here as 21st century Christians that we can see God's fulfillment of that promise is so much greater than anything Obadiah could have seen. Will God restore his people? Yes, he will. But will that restoration just be confined to this small area that we know as Israel, this small remnant of people? No, it will not. It is certainly true in the years following Obadiah that God would raise up all sorts of different kings, some of whom were capable and competent, and God would work through them to do some good things in and through Israel. But we also know that a day would come when a different sort of king would step onto the scene. In this king, there would not be a hint of pride or egoism or violence. And this king would make a way for all people to be rescued and redeemed, not just a small remnant. This king would speak of a kingdom that is not about restored land, but is instead about a restored relationship with God. This king, instead of conquering through power or violence, this king, instead of just simply being another leader with an outsized ego, he would, Philippians 2 tells us, make himself nothing. He would conquer by giving up his life on the cross, and he would die 
And he would rise again to remind us that our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death, will not win in the end. He would make a way not just for the Jewish people, but for Jew and Gentile alike, to all who believe in him to be restored into their relationship with God. And he would make this true, what the Apostle Paul would write years later, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28. Was Obadiah's vision of restoration correct? Yes, it was. But it was only a small part of God's larger vision to redeem and rescue the world through Christ. Now, I want to take just a little bit of time to talk through some big ideas concerning pride because these are so important. And then we're going to look at just three quick ideas about pride we can glean from the text and and we'll get you out of here on time. First, just so we're clear and just to repeat again, when the Bible talks about pride, it's not talking about being proud of people you love or just being glad at, you know, being able to contribute to the world or, or, or glad at what you were able to accomplish through a hard day's work. But it's talking about this excessive obsession with our own importance and over interest in personal status. And we've said before that pride is a trap. That pride lures us in with promises of greatness, but it ultimately will cut you off and cut me off from what we want out of life and what God wants for us. See, pride, pride will take us to the place where we would rather ruin a relationship than admit that we were wrong. Pride will take us to a place where we would rather alienate the people we love the most than say that we're sorry. Pride will take us to a place where we always want more and we don't know why we want more. We just want more, more money, more stuff, more power, more attention. But we just, again, have no sight or no sense of what's the point of all of it. Pride will tell us you just need more. Pride will destroy your spiritual life because it will lull you into believing that you have no need to depend on God because you are self-sufficient. And listen, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're going, no matter how much money is in your bank account, or no matter how many people know your name, you, just like me, have tremendous incentive to identify the pride in your heart and root it out. And that is true for a number of reasons, but I will give you just some examples to show you what I'm talking about here. I've talked to a lot of people, you've probably talked to a lot of people, but I have never met the person who says to me, you know, gosh, my favorite quality about my spouse, uh, I'm going to have to go with their defensiveness. I just love how defensive they get. It really makes any sort of difficult conversation we have to have go really smoothly, right? I've never met the employee who says, gosh, you know, I just love my favorite thing about my boss is how she can just never admit that she's wrong. She can't laugh at herself. She can't just sort of acknowledge when she needs help. I just love that about her. I hope I can work for her for the rest of my life, right? I've never met the person who says, you know, growing up, my father never apologized to me even once. And I just really appreciate that about him. And while we're on the subject, I just love how he would always get so angry anytime he was confronted with his own shortcomings. I've never met the person who says, man, I really love to do business with that person because she is just so obsessed with her own reputation and getting more attention. 
I've never met the person who says, you know, I gotta say, uh, this life of just sort of trying to get as much attention as I can for myself, it's really working out great for me. There's a lot of joy, a lot of peace, just general kind of happiness in my life, right? Talk to a lot of people. I've never heard anybody say those things. When we let pride take control, it will promise us so much, but in the end, it's a trap. In the end, it's a trap. It cannot deliver. And listen, come on. Some of us in this room, there is tension right now in a relationship that matters to you a lot. And you know, you know what you could do to help make things better. You know that if you were the one to initiate, it would make things better. If you took the first step, it would t- make things better. You know that that's, not, that that's true, but you're not doing it. Why? Because your pride won't let you. And some of you might say, yeah, I know this is partially my fault, but it's mostly their fault, so I can't be the one to initiate just, just out of the principle of it, right? Listen, let's just be real honest here. I am all for having principles. I am against having principles that are going to ruin your life. Right? Let's put it a different way. Let's just keep poking at this. You're, you're welcome. I am against having principles that are stupid. And the I'm not going to be the first to apologize out of principle, that is like the definition. All right? Some of you, Some of you are having a hard time communicating with with your kids or with your parents or with people that are important to you. And I I know the issues are complicated. But but at the end of the day, it's because of your pride, right? For for, for some of us, we just know, just deep in our hearts, we feel it. We know that God is calling us to make a change or take a risk or or donate the money to to the cause that we know is close to His heart or to take that step of faith or to start that project or to scale things back or just make some sort of change. We know that God is calling us to do it, but we just can't. Why? Pride. I love what Lance has, has said couple times over the last few weeks that on some level if we're going to see God do cool things through us we sort of need to be willing to look stupid every once in a while (laughs) right and that's really true we get so consumed with our pride that we can't step into what God is calling us to do or or here here, here's another one there there are some of us there are some of us who we would say I don't even believe in God I don't have a relationship I have no interest in God and the reason is because I have all these questions I have all sorts of questions out there and nobody can can help me with these questions and listen I'm not dismissing your questions there are lots of great questions out there that are worth wrestling with but come on come on come on you know you know just as well as I do that it's not about the questions it's about your pride And if you fall into any of those categories I just listed, you're probably very upset with me for pointing that out. Why? (laughs) Because if there's one thing that pride doesn't like, it's being pointed out. But I'm telling you, once we're aware of it, that is God's grace for us because once we know about it, we can do something about it and we can step out of the trap. We can step out of the trap. I mean, and let's look at this real quick from a more communal perspective. We say in Bridgeway's identity statement that we want to be a scripture-soaked and spirit-led community. We simply cannot be that if we're ruled by pride. So hopefully we're clear. There's a lot of bad news when it comes to pride, right? Like pride, bad, don't recommend it, right? But here's the good news. 
God offers us something better. God offers us something better. And there's an important progression here. God offers us his grace. Grace that tells us in our imperfection, we are loved by God. In our failures, in our sin, despite the fact that we don't have it all together, we are loved perfectly by God who went, who sent his son, who went to the cross to deal with our sin so that we could be restored in relationship with him. That is grace. And because there is grace for us, it is safe to admit that we don't have it all together. Praise God for that. And because that is true, you and I, we can live with humility. We don't have to be ruled by pride. We can live with humility and humility will open the doors that pride will only slam shut. We can, with God's help, live with humility. We don't have to live like people who are always trying to prove something to someone. Instead, we can live with a sense of humble, others-centeredness that benefits our spiritual lives, that invites people in instead of driving them away, that will help us professionally, that lowers our blood pressure, and that helps us escape the trap of pride so that we can live for something that is bigger and better and more soul satisfying than our own ego and reputation, right? So as we wrap up, three quick things from Obadiah directly related to pride. Number one, pride is not only a trap, pride is a liar. Pride is a liar. God says to the Edomites in verse three, the, your pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride deceives us in innumerable ways. Just a few of them. Pride makes us believe we are self-sufficient when in fact we are dependent for everything on God. Or, or here's another one. This is a very American idea right here. Pride makes us believe that we are self-made, that everything we have is the product of our own hard work and we have no one to thank for it but ourselves. That is not true at all. For any one of us in this room, any success we have had in any arena of life is a combination of our own hard work and a million factors that you and I had absolutely no control over, right? And when we fall into the trap of believing that we've earned everything we've had, it absolutely is another thing that pride does. It wrecks our sense of gratitude. And there are a million studies out there that'll show you that gratitude and happiness are just absolutely connected. Pride will say, no, no, you're self-made. You don't need to be thankful to anyone, right? Pride makes us believe that we are indestructible, like Edom living up in the mountains, when we are much more fragile than we realize. Pride will make us believe that people respect us because of our big ego and everything else when really all we've done is made them fear us. That they don't respect us, they only fear us. And while pride is a liar, humility tells the truth. Humility helps us to recognize with gratitude how much God and others have contributed to our success. Humility helps us to recognize that we're dependent upon God. Humility leads us to act in a way that will gain the respect of others and not just their fear. So pride is not only a trap, pride is a liar. Number two, pride will not have the final word. 
Though you soar aloft like the eagle, it says in verse 4, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And then in verse 15 it says, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Jesus in Luke chapter 16 says that what is exalted before men is an abomination before God. And in First Peter it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace, 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 grace to the humble, right? When we choose to live in a posture of pride, we are rejecting God's ways to our own detriment and destruction. And God in his mercy says in Obadiah and countless other places, if that's what you want, okay, fine, but it is not going to end well for you. Pride provokes the wrath of God. Humility invites his favor. And in the sight of God and all its glory, all his glory, every ounce of human pride will be revealed in all its smallness, right? Last thing, there is a way that is better than pride. There is a way that is better than pride. Verse 17, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And then in verse 21, it says that saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. As Christians, we can read these ancient verses and be reminded of God's invitation to us to escape the shackles of sin and receive grace and mercy and forgiveness that comes not from an earthly king, but from a heavenly king. We can recognize that the holiness, like what is described in verse 17, is not the result of our own perfection, but it is the result of God's mercy towards those who would come to him in humble repentance. We're invited into a kingdom that does not simply exist in one small corner of the world, but a kingdom that exists all over the world and will go on for all time. There's a way that is better than pride, and it is the way of humility. So what we can do is we can heed the words of the prophet Obadiah. We can heed the example of our humble King Jesus, and we can let go of pride because pride is a trap and our heavenly father who loves you and loves me wants us to be free amen amen so here's what we're going to do as we close in in the last several weeks pastor lance and, and pastor parnell have had different ones of us stand if you're struggling with you know different physical emotional situations and we're just we've we've kind of laid hands and prayed prayed for you here's what we're going to do today i just i just believe to be real honest with you that pride is something that exists in every single one of us, right? So what I want to invite us to do is if we could just stand all together. And what I want us to do is just as individuals and then as a collective community, you can go ahead and stand if you're able. I want us to close in prayer as individuals and as a community in sort of this sense of collective, hopeful repentance. That we might come to God together and say, God, we humbly repent of the pride in our hearts. Would you help us to be men and women who walk in humility? And then just as a community, God, just to say to him that we don't want to be a community ruled by pride. We want to to live with the humility that Jesus modeled for us. So let's do that. We're going to pray. And then after I say amen, our prayer team is up front. Uh, We'll be up here. They would love to be able to pray for you. They are hoping you'll come see them for prayer. So if anything was provoked this morning that you just need some prayer or anything you got going on, please come see them. But uh, let's pray and, and we'll be dismissed. God, thank you that in your kindness you show us a way that is better than pride. 
God, as we stand before you, we acknowledge the fact that living in each of our hearts, my own included, there is pride that has damaged relationships. That there is pride that has caused me to act in ways that are not honoring to you. There, there, there is pride that has caused me to lack wisdom and to just act in destructive ways. So we're asking, Holy Spirit, for each one of us that you would root out the pride in our hearts, that, God, you would shine your light into our hearts so that we might see our pride. We know that the people we love the most see it. The people we love the most, it's hurting them. But we have such a hard time seeing it in the mirror. So would you, in your grace and your mercy, expose our pride? So that we might respond not in guilt and shame, but in humble repentance, knowing that you are a God who loves and who forgives and has grace for us. And may you purify our hearts so that we might walk in humility. And God, as a community, we are before you again in in hopeful and humble repentance for the ways that we have acted pridefully, for the ways that we've considered our own interests above the interests of others. Would you... Again, help us to identify our pride, to root out our pride so that we might walk in the wholeness of humility. And God, we might have the strength on our own to do that for a moment, but we don't have the strength to do that for a lifetime. So we need your help. We need your help. Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts in such a way that we might live with that Christ-centered humility for your glory and for our joy. We pray these things in the name of our humble King Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great rest of the weekend. Prayer team is here for you.